It's Women in Space Week, and so we have lined up one of the true greats to come and talk to us today. Colonel Eileen M. Collins, who is both the first female pilot of a space shuttle and the first female commander of a mission. And we're also joined by Jonathan Ward, the co-author of Eileen's new book, Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars. He has also written a number of fantastic space books. Please come and find us on social media. We're at Space and Things 1 on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And we love hearing from you. And don't forget to hit that share button or send this to your fellow space travel enthusiast friends. But right now, please enjoy episode 58 of the Space and Things Podcast. Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 58 of our podcast. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Been real busy lately. I saw a video actually that you were in this week because it's Women in Space Week, and uh, you were included in a quite amazing video. Yeah, it's the uh, uh, Christina Corp put it together it's uh um, i'm with some really amazing company in that uh then that clip uh i'm sure we will uh link it in the show notes i i watched it and i'm a little humbled because i'm like man all the yeah. superstars are in this one i think i'm right after dr uh cyan proctor and i was a little like what i don't belong in this okay <laughs> i don't even belong in this she just got back from space you know so yeah it it, it was a huge honor and uh I hope there'll be a lasting, some lasting resonances from uh, this week's uh, Women in Space Week, which is currently going on. Yeah, so it was great, great uh, little video. We will put it in the show notes. And because it's Women in Space Week, I think we should crack on with this week's interview. Absolutely. Colonel Eileen Collins' new book is called Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, the story of the first American woman to command a space mission. And to say she went through the glass ceilings during her career is an understatement. She smashed right through them. After graduating from Syracuse in 1978 with a Bachelor of Arts in Math and Economics, Collins joined the U.S. Air Force and was one of the first women chosen for the undergraduate pilot training at Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma. Not only did she get her pilot wings and become a flight instructor, Collins also earned two master's degrees, one in operations research from Stanford and one in space systems management from Webster University. Not only that, she became the just the second female pilot to attend the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School. Then she became an astronaut selected, (laughs) right? Capping all that off. She became an astronaut. You're right. Selected in 1990, she flew her first mission in 1995 as the first female pilot of a space shuttle flying on Discovery STS-63 on a mission to Mir. She also piloted STS-84 in 1997 on Atlantis and was selected as the first female commander of a U.S. spacecraft on STS-93 in July 1999 on Columbia. Uh, We've spoken about this mission before as it very nearly didn't make it to orbit. And the video of this launch is really something. Uh, Dave will put it in the show notes. Yes, I will. She went on to command STS-114 in 2005 on Discovery, which was the return to flight mission of the space shuttle after the Columbia disaster in 2003. 
Collins retired from NASA in 2006. So obviously we're thrilled to be talking to Colonel Collins today. And it's all down to the co-author of the new book, Jonathan Ward. Emily reached out to him to see if he'd like to talk to us about this book. And amazingly, he arranged for Eileen to join us too. Now, Jonathan has written some really great space books before, most notably Bringing Columbia Home, the final mission of a lost space shuttle and her crew, which really is a must-read book if you're into the space shuttle, despite being incredibly heartbreaking. He also wrote a wonderful book called Rocket Ranch, the nuts and bolts of the Apollo moon program at Kennedy Space Center, which is a deep dive into the facilities at the center and a fantastic description of early operations and procedures uh, with the accounts of more than 70 Apollo program managers and engineers. Uh, I love this book. Anyway, let's get on with this interview. Coming to Houston, we see a 15 foot per second under speed. Ohms 1, not required. Okay, well, welcome Colonel Eileen Collins and Jonathan Ward. And thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book. Um, we'll start with a question for Colonel Collins. So was astronaut pilot or, or commander, obviously, uh, was that something you aspired to from an early age or did it become something you wanted to pursue as you developed professionally as a test pilot? Well, actually, thanks for the question, but actually it was both of those. I mean, I actually, my earliest memory of wanting to be an astronaut was fourth grade when I, you know, I tell the story many times, but I was in Mrs. Whitmarsh's class in fourth grade. I think I was nine years old reading an article about the Gemini astronauts. And I was fascinated with them and I wanted to be just like them. So I read about the things that they did. They were pilots in the military. They were test pilots. They were, uh, for the most part, they were engineers, but they were professional uh, people. And, you know, I thought, you know, I can do that. And I, there weren't any women astronauts back then, but I just thought that I'll be a lady astronaut and that would be okay. But then as my life went on and I got in high school and college, in fact, I was in college when the Air Force first opened pilot training to women and it started becoming more of a reality. And then right when I graduated from college, NASA hired their first women as space shuttle mission specialists. So then it became a a realistic goal at that point. So I think to answer your question, it's a little bit of both. Eileen, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was Jim McDivitt that you really wanted to either marry or be like, was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was one of my favorites. Oh, they were all my favorites. I would have married Jim McDivitt if I had a chance to. <laughs> I, I would marry Jim McDivitt. Well, you know, I actually thought that I would, you know, maybe I'll just marry an astronaut someday, but I, I really wanted to go myself. Which leads us nicely, actually, on to this next question. So you were interviewed by John Young when you joined NASA. So what was that experience like? And one of our patrons, Toby Jeffries, has asked, if you have any John Young stories, John Young stories always seem to go down well. So uh, do you have any any anecdotes that, that our listeners might want to hear about John Young? Yeah, I have many John Young stories, but uh, I'll be more specific in answering your question about the about the interview. So John Young was on my astronaut selection board interview, and he asked me several questions. Um, one of the questions he asked me was, have you ever been afraid in an airplane? <laughs> now, I thought this was a trick question because every pilot 
has been afraid in an airplane? I mean, the answer to the question is yes. So I think maybe he was looking for me to say no, because then he, he would know that I wasn't telling the truth. <laughs> but I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something like, uh, which time do you want me to tell you about? <laughs> <laughs> so there's um, many stories that I had. I, I think I told him about the time I was flying in fog and I had to turn around because I thought, you know, if I kept going, I might be a smoking hole in the Texas Hill Country if I kept flying into the fog. And I, I was visual flight rules only. And it was a very scary experience. I told him about that. And fast forward two months to January 16th of 1990 is when I received the phone call uh, from NASA to tell me that they were hiring me. Well, they called me. They left a message. I called back. I got the secretary who handed me off to the board administrator, who handed me off to another board administrator who handed me off to the president of the selection board, who was Mr. Don Putty, and then he handed me off to John Young. And the, the legend sort of goes that if you're not selected, one of the astronauts is going to call you. But if you are selected, you're going to hear from John Young. <laughs> so I got on the phone with John Young, and he said to me, do you still want to come to Johnson Space Center? Do you still want to work for us? And I thought, well, of course, I still want to work for you. And then he said, well, we want you to come to Johnson Space Center. And he went through five minutes worth of training and what the engineers do and what the uh, technicians at the launch site do and T-38s and simulators. And it, after five minutes of this, of course, I'm pretty excited because I, I knew that the answer was yes. But remember, I had interviewed as a mission specialist. But they asked me if I would prefer to be a pilot. They asked me at least four or five times. So at the end of the call, he said, do you have any questions? And I said, yes, will I be a pilot or a mission specialist? And he said, pilot, you're going to be the first woman space shuttle pilot. And that was my phone call with John Young, who, by the way, is a man I highly respect. And he was very, very safety conscious. Um, he was the chief of the astronaut office during the Challenger accident, and uh, he has always been very safety conscious. And I think that he became kind of like a, a father or grandfather to all of us, um, very doting, very uh, um, constantly asking questions about, is this mission safe for us to fly? And so I felt very comfortable working for him. And I I really enjoyed talking with him. I was always nervous speaking with him because I I thought he was very intelligent, very knowledgeable, and maybe I was afraid he was going to ask me a question I couldn't answer, um, but I highly respected. Uh, and I have more John Young story. I got a really good one I can tell you later if we have time. Yeah, sure. Okay. So you were one of the, I believe, one of the first women to graduate from a, a military service academy, and you were also one of the first uh, women, if not, I think you were the first woman uh, Air Force test pilot. So uh, if I'm wrong, please correct me, but were there any planes you weren't allowed to fly or planes you were able to fly as kind of an exception? Well, when I came in the Air Force in 1978, women were not allowed to fly any combat aircraft. So the aircraft were actually categorized as combat aircraft, which would be uh, fighters, bombers, reconnaissance, close air support, which would be like the A-7 or the A-10. Women were not allowed 
to fly those aircraft. I mean, you could you could fly a one-time sortie, but you are not allowed to be checked out in the airplane, which takes many months to get checked out in an airplane because you're not eligible to go into combat. So, so we, the women were uh, allowed to only fly uh, tankers, which are air refueling, uh, transport, like the, the C-141, the C-5, the C-17. C is for cargo. Um, and then administrative aircraft. And we we're also allowed to be instructors. So I, I became an instructor. And I should add one other thing. I actually never graduated from a military service academy because back in the mid-1970s, when I graduated from high school, women weren't allowed in the service academies either. Wow. Oh, okay. So the first class that graduated was 1980. Um, but I did teach at the Air Force Academy. And, and another comment there is I was um, in the first class of women to go through pilot training at my base in Oklahoma. You know, it might have been the third or fourth class. I think I might have been the fourth class overall in the Air Force, but I was in the first class at my base. I was trying to do my service academy math in my brain of when like that all happened. So, yep. How did the two of you end up working together on this book? And what was the motivation behind it? You know, I know COVID has been a horrible thing for lots and lots of people, but it actually worked out to be a very positive thing for the two of us. I'd been um, after Eileen for a while. I mean, she wrote the uh, the epilogue to bringing Columbia home, which I was deeply grateful for. And uh, you know, I became aware that she had not written her own memoirs. And I, every time I saw her, I would say, "Hey, have you ever thought about writing your own memoirs?" And if I'm not the right person to do it, let me hook you up with somebody who is. And um, so I'd been hounding her about that for about three years. And then we, I guess the last time we saw each other was at the, uh, the Space Mirror for the, the uh, annual Day of Remembrance in the uh, beginning of 2020. And we, our first conversation was on Cinco de Mayo. I'll never forget that because <laughs> but that was last <laughs> year. And she just said, uh, you know, hey, uh, my schedule is cleared up. Do you want to have some time and work on this together? And so... Um, First, I had to make sure that uh, she really wanted to work with a, a male author and not a female author. And she said, absolutely. And so uh, the two of us got to work together and just started going down the path. And uh, it, it, was, it was just a wonderful collaboration because one of the first things we talked about was personality type. You know, I do a lot of work with leadership development and, and Eileen's done her share of working with leadership and teams and things like that. We find out we were exactly the opposite Myers-Briggs types from each other. Uh, I'm an introvert, I, I, you know, INFP, she's an ESTJ. And uh, actually, the two of us had all the bases covered when we worked together. It was, a, it was a wonderful collaboration. We both ask each other questions that the other would not think about uh, asking. And, uh, and so for me, it was just a tremendous amount of fun and extremely productive. And when you work with somebody like Eileen, when you light a fire under her, you better get out of the way because <laughs> she's going to make sure that uh, whatever you were expecting is going to be delivered way higher uh, level of quality than you, what you were ever thinking about. So I, I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to work for her. And I, I'm very happy to be able to call her my friend too. And I might add that I'm, I am not a very good writer. So I, it would never have gotten done without Jonathan. Well, and I think you sell yourself short because I think a lot of what, uh, what I really liked about Eileen too, was that you know, she wouldn't rely on it just being interviews. I was prepared for that to be the the, the thing that I would ask her questions and then write it up. But I, the, the more we talked, Eileen would say like, let me go away and think about that and write about it. And she'd come back with, you know, thousands of words that she'd written as she really pondered um, 
what was the experience like on her first space flight or uh, you know what was going through her mind after the Columbia accident and things like that. And so there was just a lot of tr- tremendously rich material to work with. And I'm very grateful to her for putting so much of herself into that because I know how busy she is. The title of this book is is Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, which I think is a wonderful title. And um, I'm, I'm going to just ask an opinion here. There was, There's obviously been a lot of stories coming out in the space community uh, about the continued problems with mis- misogyny within the industry and around it. And uh, I try and observe these conversations and not have an input because I don't feel it's my place to say. Um, but I, I, I do observe. And you, the, the comment you see from people who seem to disagree that it exists seems to be someone saying something along the lines of there can't be a problem with sexism in spaceflight because we had Eileen Collins command the shuttle. Do you have anything to say to that person uh, who would think that kind of thing? Or do you have any thoughts on where we are now? Um, I'm not expecting you to comment on any particular news story, but, but obviously there's a number of things that have been brought up recently. Well, you know, that, that is a very difficult question and a very difficult topic. So I, I do acknowledge the fact that there are issues in the workplace, and it's not only obviously in space industry or science or technology, but it's throughout the United States, and in, 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 I'm sure in other places, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but I do follow the news in the United States, and I do know that these are issues. And I go out and give talks, and women come up to me, and they even ask me in the Q&A, section about the specific uh, question that you just asked me. So I know it's an issue. So I try to be sensitive to that. And I try to give my message to men and women, because there's two sides um, to every action that happens. You've got, you've got um, two things that are going on in different uh, perceptions of what's going on. And I think it's really important that people are honest with each other. So I went through uh, pilot training, advanced Air Force Base, and I was in a class, well, there were about over 500 pilots on the base. My class had 40. And we, in that class, were the first four women to ever go through pilot training at that base. And they had been training pilots since 1944, since World War II. So I was very sensitive to the fact that maybe some of the men didn't want the women there. And it turned out there were actually some of the wives that didn't want us there either. And I think that, and there were some remarks that were made to my classmates. Um, I actually never experienced it, but my classmates did, uh, the other women. So it was very sensitive. And there was one captain who was demoted because of something he said to one of the women. And I thought, and this was the first week we were there. And I just thought this is really the wrong foot to get, you know, stepping off on. We really want to work together. We're a team. So my attitude through the whole program was to be sensitive to the fact that some people didn't want to change and they didn't want the women there. Some of the wives were suspicious of what are these women doing here? You know, and I tried to get to know them. I tell a story about in the book that I went out of my way to get to know the wives, to be friends with them, to let them know that we're here because we want to be pilots. We want to be the best pilots we can be. We're not here to find a boyfriend or steal a husband, but we're here because we want to fly and we really love the mission and we love to fly. And I think we were all able to, in the end, to get along. 
but it was a little bumpy road along the way. And again, we talk about that in the book. And I, I acknowledge that there's still issues all these years later, and it, it really should not be that way. So I think we've got to work, and it's one of the things I like to talk about, that um, we've got to work on really being honest with each other. And if someone offends me, I need to confront them right away and say, well, you know, you maybe you, maybe you shouldn't have said that because it might be, maybe it might be interpreted the wrong way. And let the guys know that you're professional and you're there because you love this job and you want to do the job. You're not there for some other reason, you know, to make myself famous or to, you know, get publicity. That's not why we were there. Mm -hmm. So I could talk about this. I'm going to stop there, but I could talk about this for a long time because it's, it's a very important issue. And I really don't want to see people hurt where whatever job they're in, whether it's the man or the woman, uh, wherever they're working, I really don't want to see people hurt. I want to see people focusing on the mission of the organization and you know being the best that they can be. If I could just jump in for just a second, one of the things that really fascinated me about talking with Eileen, coming from my background in organizational psychology and organizational culture, is that Eileen was an example of leading culture change from the middle. I mean, the the Air Force had had put out now this this directive that we're going to train women pilots. Women are going to be treated equally than men. You can you can create all the directives and legislation and things like that you want to, but it comes down to implementing it at the personal level. And Eileen had to be somebody in the middle there of that culture change and help to help the people understand why this was important and why it was not a threat to them and how this could actually be something that they were going to benefit from. And uh, one of the stories that that she she talks about is that you know going into this gruff male dominated uh, pilot training thing, and then at the end of this, at, at the end of her first year of of training, people actually coming up to her and saying, you know, having women here was a good thing because it made it made us better people having the women here as part of the class, and we realize that now. And uh, again, I think that's one of those things that if you work with people and have a conversation with them about issues where they might be ignorant about uh, the issues of sexism or where they're unintentionally or intentionally acting prejudicially to you. The, the conversation is the best way to start rather than going to the inspector general and, and uh, demanding an investigation right away. Yeah, that, that's very true. I second that. And, you know, I remember one guy came up to me and said, well, I'm really glad the women are here because not only has the language cleaned up in this place, it's become more professional. But the guys are trying harder. Yeah, that says a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> um, on a similar topic, we have questions uh, from the daughter of Rachel Franklin, one of our Patreon supporters. She asked, uh, my daughter would love to know what barriers do you see that still exist for girls getting into engineering slash aerospace? And what can I do now in high school to prepare to overcome them? Actually, Jonathan and I could probably uh, both take a shot at that. But, you know, I'd say, first of all, there's no policy or legal barriers today like there were back in the 1970s. I mean, we did have legal barriers. Well, we had a policy barrier to flying in the military. And then we had, once we got over that, we had legal barriers to flying combat. Those barriers are gone now. So as a young woman, you can, frankly, pick any job you want and strive for that job. But there's still some, I would say, uh, maybe unwritten barriers where you might enter a, well, let's say you uh, decide you want to be an engineer, whether it's aerospace, astronautical, civil, electrical, mechanical, there's all biomedical, there's all types of engineering. And I, I pick engineering because I 
personally encourage young people, uh, boys and girls, to consider engineering as a uh, profession because engineers solve problems and engineers design things and engineers make the world a better place. And we need creative people to be engineers. And you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You just have to be a, a person who likes to solve problems. And I like to push that problem solving goal on, onto young people because oftentimes we fear problems and we, you know, close the door. We don't want to confront our problems, but we should confront every problem like it's a challenge. So let's just use engineering as an example. So some young women will start their engineering courses in college and they find out they're the only woman in the room and maybe they don't fit in with the guys. Well, that's something that the early women experienced in pilot training. And I think if you really love what you're doing, I think that the guys will see that, you know, you're not there for some other reason, you know, because someone told you to do it or because, you know, maybe you wanted to be the only woman, but no, you're there because you love the mission. You want that course or you want that degree. You want that career and just stay focused on your mission, which is take this course, you know, strive for this profession and always stay focused on that. And don't let these little side things bother you. And that's easy to say, but you know, I've confronted them too. And sometimes I ignored them. You know, I'd hear a joke that really wasn't very funny and I would ignore it. And then the guys would all laugh and say, would someone explain that joke to Eileen? And so, okay, so I could have got mad at that, but I actually laughed at that line. Would someone explain that joke to Eileen? I'd, I'd laugh at it. And I would really, um, although the joke maybe the joke itself may not have been appropriate to laugh at. So I've just tried to kind of feel my way through. And for the most part, I didn't engage. And I, I did not let anyone see that I was upset or mad at them. I would either try to stay neutral, maybe talk to them later. But through it all, I tried to make sure that I kept open communication with everyone. And don't get mad at anybody. I'm not talking to that person. I'm not talking to that person. No, I tried to keep open communication with everyone, even the people that I didn't see eye to eye with. And you're not going to change everyone either. Um, but I think it's important that you get along for the sake of the mission and, and what the reason, the goal, the reason that you're there in the first place. And I'll turn it over to Jonathan if he wants to add anything. No, I think you said it beautifully. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious when you think about like people who are going to be stuck together on the International Space Station, not going to be stuck together. They get to serve together on the International Space Station for six months to a year. I mean, I think you have to be able to communicate any frustration that's going on, you've got to be able to get that kind of thing out in the open. You can't carry a grudge when you're you're stuck in a room with somebody for a year. You know, you've got to. And I think that's it's interesting the way that NASA has its selection criteria have evolved over the years from the test pilot mentality to the uh, you know we've got to work as a team kind of thing. Yep, that that's very true. And and the uh, selection board mm. makes phone calls not only to your bosses. They call people that worked for you to find out what kind of boss you were and, wow. and your peers to find out what uh, is, is this person easy to get along with? Because those qualities are as important as the mechanical qualities and the problem solving qualities that astronauts need. Yeah, this is probably the reason why I've worked best self-employed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I struggle as a team player. But never mind. <laughs> I'm not an astronaut. So, but uh, that's some great advice uh, to, to Rachel's daughter there for sure. 
Thanks for the question. Number 15. 
And Eileen, you were saying that that was actually the last sim run you guys did before you went out to the Cape was a fuel cell or was a electrical issue and a loss of engine controllers. Yeah, that's that's right. And that was that was a, a kind of a, a huge coincidence. And it even became an, a joke afterwards that <laughs> we did our uh, very last ascent simulation, which is four runs, you know, four launches. And we had time to do a fifth one. So we we did an extra run and the training team put together the script on the fly. Hey, let's pick some malfunctions out of the air. And they picked AC1 phase A failure. Wow. And that was the one that happened on the real launch. So it is just a huge coincidence. There were several coincidences on that mission. For example, my license plate of the car that I was driving was Mrs. 93R, which I got the license plate before I was assigned to the flight. Mrs. MRS, like Mr. Mrs., that was a coincidence. And then the fact that the number was 93 was a coincidence. So we were always joking, what does the R stand for? <laughs> and everyone joked that R was RTLS or R was recycle or R was redo or, you know, we, we had all kinds of uh, jokes, but, you know, it was really... There were so many coincidences around that flight. It was almost, it was almost a little bit spooky. But in the end, we flew a successful mission. All I was caring about was, is my crew trained to do the mission? That's the job as a commander. Is my crew trained to do this mission? And that we deployed the Chandra X-ray Observatory safely and successfully. And all of my focus was on that. Wow. Uh, I'm guessing that the answer to this next question may, may be similar, even though it's a, a different different topic. Another one of our Patreon supporters, Karen Sturm, has asked, uh, well, she has said, um, she's just watched a lot of the STS-114 coverage again. And she says, how difficult was it to not get really annoyed with the sometimes extremely negative media attitude and panic-driven questions during the onboard press conference? Was that equally something you were trained to do or was that just within you? So probably a little bit of both. So I was not annoyed at all by those questions. And I felt so. So when I talked to any of the uh, journalists or the uh, people that cover the space program professionally or, you know, even people that do it on the side, they are speaking for the the people throughout the country. They're asking questions. I think that I'm talking to the American taxpayers who paid for the shuttle program. So I felt a responsibility to give them all the information that they wanted and also to let them know how the crew felt because I, as the commander, I was speaking for the crew and my crew of course had mixed feelings. I mean, my crew was upset that foam fell off the, the uh, external tank on STS-114 because it was foam that brought down the previous mission. It was foam that, put a hole in Columbia and killed the seven crew members. And we still had foam fall off the tank on our mission and it should have been fixed. So, you know, my crew was upset about that. I tried to keep a level head about it because I've got to get this mission done. Okay. So we did the inspection. We knew we didn't have any damage. So I said, we'll talk about that after the flight. We're safe to come home. Let's refocus on this mission and what we're doing. We had three spacewalks. We had 5,000 pounds of uh, gear that we had to move from the shuttle to the station and back. And again, my job as a commander is to get this mission done safely and successfully. And for me to get upset about something that happened, you know, a couple of days ago that I could deal with that after the flight. So I, again, it was to 
keep a level head. And I always think the, the purpose of the, the commander or whether you're the office administrator or the CEO, you've got to keep people calm and you've got to be able to look at things with a, with a holistic point of view and not just focus on something that might be irritating me. And that was a serious problem. And, and this, the space shuttle program grounded the shuttle, which lasted 12 months because they had to fix that area of the fuel tank where the foam fell off. So I, I thought the shuttle program, despite the fact that I'm going to say we made a mistake because I'm part of the shuttle program, despite the fact that we made a mistake, we went back and refocused and let's not make the same mistake again a third time. You know, one of the things that I really appreciated hearing about you, if you don't mind me jumping in, was was on, going back to 93 was, you know, after you successfully deployed Chandra in the you know the very first couple of orbits, then you had a little bit of, I mean, second, there were secondary experience uh, experiments that had to happen, and there started being all kinds of breakdowns in the process, things that hadn't been rehearsed in terms of everybody trying to work together in the same spot and things like that. And I, I really appreciated hearing you as a leader talking about uh, calling a timeout when things just started just really getting frustrating. You know, you acknowledged that you felt frustrated and you could tell that your crew was feeling frustrated and you called a timeout and you kind of asked everybody to talk about what was going on and let's work this out and let's figure out how we're going to we're going to jointly solve this and make this be successful as a mission. And I think that's the side of the commander role that we don't often get a chance to hear about. Yeah. And sometimes the biggest problems you have. So so that mission, the Chandra deploy was as perfect as it could be. It was the thing that we practiced over and over again as a team. And it went perfect up in space. I mean, I I couldn't have asked for anything better. The rest of the mission, we which we didn't focus on as much in training, uh, is where we had the problems. So, and I was surprised that that ended up being as challenging as it was. And yeah, we did call a timeout <laughs> one time. And, <laughs> and the Capcom's down in mission control figured out why we weren't talking to them. And they said, let's just, I, I don't know, I can't remember if it was Story Musgrave or Shannon Lucid, but uh, that were our Capcoms, but they told me after the flight, yet yeah, we knew y'all were having a crew meeting, so we decided to lay off for a while. Absolutely. <laughs> this is it's wonderful hearing these stories, isn't it? The, the behind cool. the scenes stuff. Great. And cool. I did, one of the things that I, you know, I, I hate to plug the book, but that's what we're here for, right? Yeah, we're, absolutely. We're, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, one of the things that I love about uh, this and the people who, who have reviewed the book as they read through it is that Eileen is so free to admit the things that went right as well as the things that went wrong, you know, the mistakes that she made along the way and what she learned from them. And so there's no, no pulling punches on any of that in the, in the book. You know, Eileen's very upfront about, you know, here's, a, here's a, a bonehead screw up I made, but, you know, here's how we got out of it. And, uh, um, and I, th I think, again, that it becomes very important for people to see that uh, astronauts are not, uh, uh, you know, saints who are riding on white horses into battle all the time, that they're human beings just like the rest of us do. And they make mistakes. And, you know, part of it is just to kind of figure out how are you going to be resilient and work your way out of this? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the book is a, it's, it's a collection of stories and lessons learned. And believe it or not, one of the things that frustrated me the most was on STS-93, we had a a call with some students and I set this whole thing up and I forgot to close the circuit breaker. And then we did the pass and we could never make the connection. And the whole reason that it failed was the commander forgot to push in a circuit breaker. And it just goes to show you, and that was one of the many problems we had with our, 
what we call secondary experiments. And, and you know, there's a lot of little lessons learned that come out of things like that that I, I won't go into now, but I talked about a four-step process of dealing with the mistakes that I used for myself, that I used for my crew. And then I also taught my children, you know, when you make a mistake, you know, you need to admit your mistake. You need to go back and fix it. And the third thing is do something to prevent it from happening again. And the fourth one is move on. Don't get mad at yourself. Don't beat yourself up over the head and shoulders. Just take, and these are some of the people I admire the most. They were able to recover from their mistake and they charge forward on the mission. And I also know people of which I am one where I'll dwell on a mistake and dwelling on a mistake just slows you down and even causes more mistakes. So I have a little talk that I give on that and I tell my kids and they're like, mom, would you stop telling us about your four step process? <laughs> I go, well, you know, it works, you know, someday you'll thank me for it. We, we have a different process as musicians. Uh, when we make a mistake, we're told to make the same mistake again to make it look like we did it on purpose. Oh, there you go. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I prefer your process. That's much well, I, better. I, I remember a conductor telling me once, he said, you know, you can't change the note that just came out of your mouth. So don't worry about it. Yeah. You know, just focus on the next one that's coming up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so true. Absolutely true. Yeah. So uh, we are looking forward to this book, uh, especially, but before, before we go, I think we've got a couple of questions for Jonathan, just about some of your other books, if that's all right, because uh, sure, absolutely. we are, we are big fans. You wrote uh, about seven years ago, wrote, published, uh, two books about the workers at the Rocket Ranch. I believe one of them was called The Rocket Ranch, uh, and one was called Countdown to a, a Moon Launch. Right. These are among like the first books that I can think of um, that really have spotlit the workers and not just astronauts. Sorry, sorry, Eileen. Uh, <laughs> why is it essential <laughs> to preserve the the space worker stories? Well, I mean, going back and thinking about it is, you know, there were 24,000 people at Kennedy Space Center alone. You know, in the Apollo era, there were more than 400,000 people who were working on some aspect of putting Americans on the moon at Kennedy Space Center alone, 24,000 people. And as I talked to each one of these folks, I realized, you know, every one of these people showed up and did their job to the absolute best of their, of their um, capability. And, you know, a lot of these folks at this point now are in their 80s and 90s, and we're losing them very rapidly. As I, as I started going through and doing more and more of these interviews, you know, it was like, well, I should put you in touch with so-and-so, but he's not, he's not sharp anymore, or he's, you know, he's not, um, he doesn't remember that or things like that. And so it just, it became very important to try to capture that kind of thing. But I, I guess the theme that starts running through the books when I think about it is going back and looking at those people and um, the folks that participated in the recovery and reconstruction of Columbia, and even talking with Eileen is, you know, these are, these are ordinary people who find themselves at a very uh, important crossroads in, in, um, in, our, in our, our future. I mean, these are people, ordinary guys and, and, and women in the Apollo era who are working on putting people on the moon. The, the folks in deep East Texas who suddenly find the space shuttle crashing down around them and have to help NASA kind of come back together. They could, they could have ignored it or they could have put themselves into making this kind of thing happen. Or Eileen realizing that this is an opportunity for her. It's not going to be easy, but you know, 
this is the right time for her. If she's going to become an astronaut, these are the things that she needs to do. And then she sets her sight towards doing that. And I think that's one of the things that just really appeals to me is, is that I'm extremely humbled whenever I talk to the folks who worked on these programs. And I wonder what I have had the determination and the, uh, the grit to kind of see, see through working 18 hours a day for two years in a row to make something important happen. And, uh, you know, I like to think that I would have, but I've never been tested in that way. And so to me, it's just a fascinating thing to talk to people who go through that and find themselves put through that kind of test. I'm curious, Jonathan, as to whether you have any, any other projects coming up. What's next? Now you've got this book coming out. Do you know what's next or is that not decided yet? Uh, I actually have two non-book related. Well, actually, one is semi-book related, but we just signed a movie deal to uh, turn Bringing Columbia Home into a feature uh, feature length film. And wow. so that is, uh, yeah, we're no extremely way. excited about that. Mike Leinbach and I have been in this uh, negotiation discussion with this uh, production company for three and a half years. And we finally just signed the contract when we were assured that uh, it was going to be handled with the dignity and respect that we tried to, to put into the book. Um, and so that's, we're just now starting on the, the screenwriting process. I'm not actually writing the screenplay, but I'm helping the screenwriter make contacts with people. And so that's going to be an interesting project that's probably going to take three to five years. And I know I'll be working on that as a consultant. Um, the other thing is that I, uh, something that just happened within the last month is that I got named to be resident astronomer on uh, uh, three Viking ocean cruises uh, coming up wow. in November, December, awesome. January. So I'm going to be at sea teaching astronomy and leading planetarium shows and observing sessions for for two months. It's going to be uh, it's going to be different. We'll see how that goes. Nice. That sounds fantastic. Awesome. Eileen, uh, we have one, one more question from one of our patrons, um, which I think is is a good place to to kind of lead us at the end. Um, Lauren said uh, that she recently watched the Mercury 13 documentary. And it was clear that you had a strong connection with with those women. Did you follow Wally Funk's recent flight and how did that make you feel? Yeah, I did follow Wally's recent flight and I've been on the phone with her quite a bit uh, before and after her flight. So I was actually lucky enough to do a, a long interview with a news network, uh, lasted about 30 minutes, which is a long time during her flight. And got to talk a little bit about, you know, what they were doing. I've never flown on Blue Origin, obviously, myself, but I knew, you know, I knew Wally really well. And I knew a little bit about, you know, how the architecture was of Blue Origin missions. So that was pretty neat. And, you know, Wally also published a book uh, last summer about her escapades throughout her life. And, you know, it was great that she had a chance to fly in space, but take a look at her life and the things that she did. I mean, she did some really amazing things in the flying world and did so much for women in flight, it, but as well as uh, she was a national transportation and safety board uh, accident investigator. And I don't remember this hundreds of accidents that she investigated. And she was also a speaker and she would talk about flight safety at various flying conventions. So she has done so much uh, for safety and for women in the world of aviation. So She's just a wonderful person. And I didn't, on the Mercury 13, I only met nine of the thir- of the 13 women. Uh, they were actually, uh, there's only two that are still alive today. So uh, it's sad that we've lost them, but I think that their story has been very inspirational uh, to many people. 
And Eileen invited them, every all of them to come to her, every one of her launches as well. That's right. We have a photo of, of them in my first launch in the book. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. So it's a great documentary and, and, and yeah, Wally's book is amazing as well. And we'll put, we'll put a link to that in, the, in our show notes as well. So people can check that out, but um, thank you very much for sharing this. Um, Eileen, have you got any other things coming up that you would like to share or is your main focus at the moment, this book? Well, my main focus right now is the book and I'm also a speaker. So I, I spend time, you know, now that we're starting, it seems to be that we're starting to come out of the pandemic. So I'm uh, actually, I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow to go on a uh, actually in-person speech. So there's more of those that are uh, happening now. Um, but I do want to tell you a real quick, funny John Young story. Oh, fantastic. So John Young, awesome. he, he loved to travel to Great Britain and the people over there loved him. And he did those uh, trips quite a, a bit. And so one time, my husband, who's, who's a very good golfer, was playing in the British Amateur Golf Tournament in Nairn, Scotland. Nice. And so I went over with him. It was 1993. And we're, you know, he's doing the practice round. He's playing in the tournament. And we noticed a, a newspaper, uh, you know, paper newspaper that was out on one of those, you know, in front of a restaurant on a street. And on the headline, it said, astronaut to speak in Nairn. And I said to my husband, they know I'm here. <laughs> they, know, they know I'm here. And so he bought the newspaper and I looked at it. And it, of course, it wasn't me. It was John Young <laughs> coming to Nairn. And although we actually uh, didn't cross paths with him, we played a joke on him. We uh, bought a postcard from Nairn. And my husband and I wrote on the back, dear astronaut Young, you know, here we are in Nairn, Scotland. Wish you were here. And we wrote a couple other and we mailed it to him. And so he really enjoyed that. But uh, he was he was well loved, not only in this country, but he was really well loved in the United Kingdom, in, you know, in England, Scotland, uh, Ireland, Wales. Uh, they still talk to me about him to this day. That's amazing. That's an awesome story. All right. I think that's a great place to stop. So uh, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for both of you for joining us today. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, good luck with the book. Can't wait to read a copy myself. Yep. Cannot wait. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome home. Eileen, you and the crew, just an outstanding job deploying Chandra and bringing Columbia home for a beautiful land. There are no deltas. We'll uh, meet you in the post landing. Copy, no post landing, Delta. And we'll go to the entry checklist. Well, well, well. <laughs> yeah, that was incredible. Um, it's such a cliche to say this word, but really, Eileen, Colonel Eileen, I should say, um, is just such an inspiring person. I, I just loved her talk about mistakes because I'm one of those people that beats myself up when I mess up, you know, where like I'll listen to this podcast sometimes on my iPhone. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> I mispronounced that word or something like that. You know, and I tend to just beat myself up. But I love that strategy of not getting really mo emotional about making mistakes, you know, just sort of like, OK, I messed up. Let's just fix it. Move on. Whatever. That's such a smart strategy rather than just beating yourself up and feeling bad for the rest of the day. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but that was amazing. Oh, my God. I, I thought the 
the John Young stories were really cute. Not trying to take away from her, but I, I thought that was kind of a neat insight into how he was because you hear so many different things about him and I thought that was marvelous. Yeah, and Toby, who who asked us to ask that question, he thinks that all uh, ex-NASA astronauts should have a mandatory John Young question within any interviews. And I, I think I think maybe that may be a thing that we have to do just uh, if we get the opportunity again, because why not? They always seem to be interesting. And he was there for so long and for such a huge part of it. So yeah. it's always going to be interesting, isn't it? I didn't know he was famous in United Kingdom. <laughs> That's kind of but I could see why. I could see why. To be in Nairn, of all places as well, it's not a big place. And and for Eileen to be there and then see that, I mean, the coincidence is nuts. For American uh, listeners, that's pretty crazy that, that she went there not knowing he was going to be there. It It's the equivalent of, uh, uh, you know, me being in Wheeler, Texas and, and then seeing... My seeing that one of my friends was going to be there the next week and we'd not discussed it and this isn't like middle of nowhere town like absolute middle of nowhere so that was that was a pretty crazy story as well but uh, we've we've spoken about this a few times about just when we've been talking about astronauts it's great to see a human side of them and I think I think Eileen there was so human in all her answers and to an extent she's not and when she's talking about uh, that launch <laughs> with the anomalies, STS-93. Oh that still blows my mind. Even then, I know she said she was trained. To me, that still was superhuman when when you hear of what they went through. But the way she talks is very human and, and relatable. There's so many things you can take from what she said and apply to so many situations. Like a life, it was almost a life lessons with Eileen kind of, uh, kind of chat, wasn't it? Really it really was. Yeah, it was marvellous. I tell you what, I'm uh, thinking about that STS-93 ascent. Uh, I, I I was in the military at the time when that happened. And I was watching it on TV. A part of the reason why I thought her stories were relatable was because we both have a military background. Yeah. And I remember watching that launch on TV. And, you know, I was I worked in a nuclear power plant. So I was trained to deal with, like, when the crap hit the fan and stuff. And just be calm, you know. I would do these drills, be real chill throughout them, and just they, they'd be practicing horrible stuff. And I'm like, yeah, no sweat. I'm good. I was about to wet my pants during that because <laughs> I was like, what? Like, that doesn't sound right. So I, I tell you what they um, when people say, you know, uh, she is very relatable. But at the time, she's made of she's made of pure steel because I was about to wet my pants during that. I'll 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 just be honest. Um, I can't wait to read the book. That's all I got to say. I'm sure the book is full of amazing stories that we we haven't even heard yeah, of yet. So I, I, I cannot wait. And I think that was the key there. All throughout, I was thinking, oh, I can't wait to read this book. I can't wait to read this it's book. It's going to be good. It's going to have a lot of great stories and lessons in there, I think. And and also, Jonathan, how cool is it that the, the news about uh, bringing Columbia home being turned into a film? I hadn't heard that. I mean, you may have known that from friendships, but that's amazing that that's happening. Yes, um, I I trust. I mean, I trust since Jonathan and and Mike are involved with it, it'll it'll be very well done, obviously. But um, yeah, I think that that book is definitely one of those books that kind of deserves a the film treatment because that's just such a, a a tasteful film treatment because it's just such a rich story. You've obviously read the book yeah. where they just take this awful situation. You know, and they try to make it into something healing for like a community, not not make the situation healing, but they try to find some kind of meaning from this whole thing. And they try to put it back together. They try to find out what happened for 
family and friends. It's it's very moving. And it was one of those things like when I first read that book, I was like, this had to be told. And it had to be told by Mike and John. Yeah. You know, Jonathan. But uh, I just think it's such a fine book. It's it's amazing. And and he's done other books as well. Like uh, we previously mentioned that really spotlight the uh, workers at, you know, at, at the Cape and uh, Kennedy Space Center. And those books are full of stuff that I had no idea about until I read them. Like, um, there's some amazing stories in there. And it, it really, I love that it spotlit, like, workers. And, I mean, not to say anything bad. I, we love astronauts, but it's neat to hear about the people who kind of, you know, put every, the workforce, that put everything together that was responsible for all these great missions. Yes. It was it was a pleasure to have both uh, Colonel Collins and Jonathan on our podcast. That's for sure, um, and I, hopefully, I'm I'm sure we'll we'll hopefully speak to our, both of them again about their future projects. Hopefully, that would be lovely. But for those of you who want to watch the full unedited video of that interview, you can head over to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash space and things, and the details of this new book and uh, how you can find out and of course, Jonathan's other books, and about how you can find out more about Colonel Collins and Jonathan will be within our show notes. Just check them out on your podcast provider, uh, or if they're not clear there, because some of them don't show the show notes very well, just go over to our website, which is spaceandthingspodcast.com. You're listening to Space and Things. So uh, I know we missed the news last week, but we're going to just keep it fairly brief this week because we've obviously... There's been a lot going on, and we don't want to cut too much out of that interview. It's too good. Yeah, we can't cut it. <laughs> we can't cut too much of it. <laughs> Absolutely. So there have been four launches since we last recorded the news. Uh, there's been two in China, although one didn't go so well. So uh, read up about that. And one in California and one in Kazakhstan. As always, videos and information is in the show notes. But the most Im- interesting of these is the... It was the Kazakhstan launch on Tuesday, the 5th of October, which saw a Soyuz 2.1A rocket take a three-person crew up into orbit, and they have since docked with the International Space Station. And it's of note because of who those people are. The commander is cosmonaut Anton Shaplarov, and the other two passengers are Klim Shimpenko and Yulia Peresild who are a director and actress who will be shooting some scenes for a movie called The Challenge while on board the station. More space tourists, but with a very different goal. Yeah, um, this to me is kind of crazy because she's only the fifth Russian woman ever to go to space. So this is, I mean, even though I I, I know a lot of people like, oh man, she's an actress. Um, I I, I hate saying this and I'm probably going to catch flack for saying this. The, the the current um, expedition crew didn't look too jazzed about <laughs> having them aboard, but um, I she is the fifth Russian woman in space, and that's that counts for something because uh, it is Women in Space Week for World Space Week. That's the theme of World Space this Week this week, and um, there's a lot of weeks in that <laughs> sentence. So. <laughs> I think it counts for something because um, the Russians are famously superstitious about putting women in space, hence why there have only been five women so far. Um, And I hope to see that number go up because, you know, I I have no doubt there's more than enough, hopefully more than enough capable, you know, women who are capable of going to space in in Russia. I'm sure there's plenty. So hopefully we'll see more. I agree. This is an interesting story, though, uh, because... This is a continuation of a theme of this year. You know, space tourism is here. 
Exactly. You know, Tom Cruise is apparently going to the ISS to do some filming soon as well. We don't know when, but this is something that, that people involved with the International Space Station are going to have to get used to. You know, the Axiom mission is going up in the new year that's going to be taking some tourists up to the space station. It's going to become a, a, a kind of resort in space, which is pretty crazy, really. Uh, but that that's, that's the, the current reality where we're at, isn't it? Exactly. And next week, I think Bill Shatner, uh, William Shatner, the <laughs> Star Trek captain, is is supposed to go to space at age 90. Um, I'm happy for him. I, I'm a little nervous because not to not to be ageist or anything like that. But, you know, uh, if if I, I I'll be lucky if I make it to 90, we'll just put it that way. I'll be very lucky if I if I if I'm sitting here doing space of things at 90, I'm going to be very blessed. That's all we got to say. <laughs> I'll be here with my walker, probably. Yeah, hopefully we'll have someone else to do all the editing for that by then. Yeah, you can just sit in a recliner or something. <laughs> oh, I'd love that. I, I'll, I'll keep doing it. I'll keep doing it well past retirement age, as long as, as long as someone steps in for that part of it. We're, we're fine. Uh, but yeah, well, as long as we can, Emily, as exactly, long as we can, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> all right. So perhaps the most wonderful thing to happen in this last two weeks was the arrival of Bepi Colombo at the planet Mercury. The spacecraft, which was built as part of an ESA and JAXA collaboration, sent back some photos of its first approach of the planet, which saw it get to within 124 miles of it on Friday, October the 1st. This is the first of six flybys of the planet before it'll enter its uh, orbit in 2025. We'll post the photos on our website, but they're really wonderful to see. Oh, man, when this when this notification came up for me, I was like, what? I, I forgot that it was happening so soon. It kind of caught me out. I, I forgot that I knew it was on the way. I just forgot that it was nearly there. Yeah, it's it's so cool to see it because it's not something we've seen a lot. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's really neat. Yeah, it's also pretty crazy that I have to do these six. I don't know if they have to. I'm pretty sure I read they have to. They have to do these six flypasts to get it just to slow down, gradually getting the orbit smaller and smaller. But it, it's pretty crazy this this mission. Yeah, it, it it's really cool, and I, I love the. I love the pictures we got back so far. I, I love stuff like that. And this is this is the first, uh, well, it's the first of many as well. Once it gets in orbit, we're going to get some great stuff. So exactly. Elsewhere, we've spoken about this over the last few weeks. Uh, Virgin Galactic has mm-hmm. been cleared to fly again by the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA as they're called, mm-hmm. after its six weeks inquiry into the suborbital launch on July 11th of its VSS Unity. The FAA statement said that they required Virgin Galactic to implement changes on how it communicates to the FAA during flight operations to keep the public safe. They added, Virgin Galactic has made the required changes and can return to flight operations. Interesting. Uh, And talking of the FAA, um, they have had some other things to consider with regards to Blue Origin after an essay was published by the Lioness on 30th of September, which was authored by 21 past and current Blue Origin employees, all but one of them anonymously, raising concerns about safety of the spacecraft and the culture within the company. Someone from the FAA emailed space.com. Then they said the FAA takes every safety allegation seriously and the agency is reviewing the information. Which is interesting because Blue Origin, as you mentioned earlier, are flying next week. And uh, William Shatner is one of the f- of the crew that will be going up on Tuesday. But let's talk about this article because it's pretty, 
pretty damning of the company. This is hard to put into words. I've I've tried to think sort of all week what I want to say about this because um, <laughs> I knew we were going to talk about it on the podcast. I think I was talking to my husband the other day, and my husband's really supportive. But I think I was like, you know, a, a lot of people have this attitude, like, oh, why is this stuff popular now? Why is it popular to talk about sexism? Why are we? Why is it just becoming a topic now? And I'm like. It didn't just become popular now. It's It's been happening for ages and ages. Just nobody wanted to say anything about it because they were scared because mm. you could lose your job. <laughs> you know, you could lose your job. You could lose an opportunity. I think now it's getting to the point. I don't know what if it was the pandemic or what, but I think people now are just getting to the point where it's like this has just got to stop. And I think we all need to talk openly about it. I mean, that's just how I feel about it. I think these things need to be spoken about. Because we have to solve them. Mm. My attitude in the past <laughs> was, you know, I'm just not going to say anything about it. Or I've had some pretty unpleasant things happen to me, but I've just sort of let it, like, I just never did anything. And I never spoke out about it. I regret it. Because those people are still out there and they're still doing the same things. I think I think there's a few interesting things within this article. Obviously, it, it did talk a lot about the the misogyny within the company. If anything, my one criticism of the article is it it, it covered too much stuff, so it made it really hard to to know what to talk about. We all want to talk about different the focus. Yeah, if this is all true, then it's crazy. I think that, that there was one there's one woman who was a previous employee who was who was let go a couple of years ago. This has to be taken seriously because she knows if there's any way they can come back at her through litigation, they will. And so she has to know that they haven't got a leg to stand on in court if they try and take it take it to that place because she won't be able to afford to go against Bezos. Yeah. So so there has to be something within it that is absolutely bang on for to have have the confidence to put a name on it. Yep. The stuff about safety is very concerning. Um but for for me it's the culture stuff, not just the sexism stuff. That all the yeah. staff there were given new contracts that said if they ever left the company, neither them or their Heirs could criticize the company. Yeah. Or they would be taken to court. That's nuts. Yeah, that's extremely disturbing to me because I'm like, that doesn't, um, you're not part of the company anymore, really. So what difference does it make if you say anything about them or not? It doesn't, you're no longer with them. And people don't have to believe you. I mean, you could say, you know, Jeff Bezos is really an alien from the planet. I don't know something <laughs> uh, now. Now I'm going to get sued by him, but I'm just saying, I mean, that that was very disturbing to me as well, because I'm like, why? What kind of secrets do y'all have? Yeah, it, scre it screams that they want they they know that there's bad things going on. So therefore, they know that they don't want people to talk. Yeah, about they got to squash it. I think the wording was in the contract was if you say anything disparaging, we will mm -hmm. take it to court and you will pay the legal fees. That bothers me. Yeah, that, that's very weird because I, I've had a lot of jobs in my life. I've been in the military. And I never had to sign anything like that. And I, I, I get, I get non-disclosure agreements yeah. about perhaps bits of technology or something like that that I don't want people to know about. But if it's just about the company as a whole, and, and uh, sorry, I, <laughs> I'm going down this route. But America's America's supposed to be the land of the free, where freedom reigns, and this, that, and the other. So if you've got something to say about your previous employer, you should be able to say it with. And the fact they're taking that freedom away from from the staff, I find troubling as a non-American. I agree. People in America would, would tolerate that. 
that that's that's crazy to me. I agree. You know, I, I feel like we should be able to speak out, you know, and speak truth to power. That's what our country, you know, as long as you're not threatening to hurt anybody. I mean, that's that is absolutely that is what this country was built upon. And um, also, I just I've just never heard of anything like that in my life. I mean, like I said, I've had all sorts of jobs. I've signed NDAs before, but it was but that's different. That's more like you know, okay, we're working on a new technology. Don't give all our secrets away. I can understand yeah. that. Okay, that's different. But this is you can't talk bad about us ever or else we'll sue you and your kids can't say anything about us. I'm like, yeah, what? that's so weird. Especially in light of what they're also trying to do to NASA. They sued NASA over the lander and now, oh my God, it's just a mess. <laughs> it's just a mess. Yeah. Not not a good PR week for Blue Origin, no. and I find it really interesting that they're pressing ahead with this launch next week. Uh, and obviously, we hope it goes yes. well. I I've been a fan of what this rocket's been doing because I didn't know what was going on behind the closed closed doors. And sure, every company has probably got some bad things behind closed doors that have been going on. But the fact they've tried to shut down the conversation before it's even happened. Yeah really troubles me and, and and even though Bezos did a load of wonderful charity stuff earlier this year which we talked about and gave a load of money to people this side of it is concerning for me and uh, I'm not best pleased we will put a link to that article in the show notes for you to read for yourself if you wish um, but uh, yeah hopefully next week we'll be able to talk about a successful mission yeah. and I, I hope it's a success for the for the participants involved uh and and those who are in the company trying to do good things but yeah i i think that needs to be addressed that culture and the and the uh the people at the top needs need to have a good hard look at themselves absolutely i'll just finish with one thing i i think company culture contributes directly to safety yeah, absolutely welcome home columbia beautiful beautiful Thanks for joining us this week. We hope you've enjoyed the interview as much as we did. And thank you in advance to all of those who hit the share button this week. Yep. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week to talk about spacesuits. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions. <laughs>